Well, hello. Welcome to the fourth episode of the First Draft podcast. Um, feels like a big number for, I don't know why, two felt like a big number, and I think I made the same comment about three. So um, maybe I'm just into all numbers and amazed at the continuing existence. Um, I won't go as far as saying success yet of this podcast. Thank you, first of all, to everybody who's listening. Thank you if you are a subscriber to History Etc. Um, you have what I can only describe as my eternal and undying love. Only my eternal and undying love. Um, I'm super grateful. Thank you. You're keeping this going. Um, and thank you for sending all the questions that you sent for this episode of the podcast and last week's episode of the podcast, to be fair. Um, I'll tell you in a minute where I am because it's quite exciting today. You might just hear a clip. If you listen carefully, do you hear that? That's the clip-clop of a brown and white horse. I won't say piebald because I'm not 100% sure what that means. But it's a horse riding up a sunken lane. No, being ridden up a sunken lane in East Sussex in the village of Wilmington. Because today I am in Wilmington at a pretty dope building called Wilmington Priory. And I'm here. I can't tell you why I'm here. I'm here on a super ninja filming mission. That's as much as I can say. When you find out about it, you're gonna. I think you're gonna enjoy it. I've enjoyed it certainly. Um, all will be revealed about that in due course. But while I'm here, I thought I should really tell the listeners to First Draft about Wilmington Priory because it's it's one of the most extraordinary buildings I think I've ever been to. Um. What is Wilmington Priory? Well, it's in the village of Wilmington, to start with. I'm, I'm standing in the garden at the moment, beautifully tended gardens. It's, uh, it's a sunny, late January morning, um, and the gardens are just starting to show the first signs of the beauty that they will uh, bestow upon all visitors here when spring comes. Little snowdrops are poking their heads up. The pruned roses are starting just to bud, and I can only imagine how beautiful it's going to look in the early spring or late summer. Looking out from the garden, looking, I suppose, what must be west-ish, could be west-ish, could be any direction really, except the sun is, uh, the, the late January sun is slightly starting to set, uh, so I assume it's west-ish. Um, I see the incredibly steep chalk downs of East Sussex and on them is the Wilmington Long Man. Now this is a thing, Americans, this might not be a thing and Australians and Canadians and other listeners, this may not be a thing where you are but in the south of England there are two chalk men, huge figures drawn into the hillsides in the chalk downs of southern England. And I'm looking at what's arguably the second most famous, which is the Wilmington Longman. Um, he's a kind of... What does he look like? What does he remind me of? He's a sort of cartoonish figure holding two staves, or sticks, uh, as they're more commonly known. And it was once thought, I believe that it had been carved from the chalk of the hillside in the Iron Age back in the day. Um, although I, I think, 
although I haven't read the latest archaeological report, I think most recent excavations up there have discovered that at least what we see now uh, was done in the 16th or 17th century. Um, and I haven't been up there. I don't have time to go up there today. But apparently it's not chalk, you can see. It's, it's white-painted um, mortar, stone, something like that. However, none of that is to diminish the extraordinary aspect of the Wilmington Longman. And all day while I've been here in the Priory, at the little car park next door, uh, ramblers, hikers, walkers, pedestrians of all varieties have been arriving and some of them had staves of their own walking sticks i don't mean the 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 curved things to assist with the the mere act of walking i mean aggressive like uh, carbon fiber walking sticks because they're going to go up the hill and they're going to check out the long man at close range and fair play to them i however have been as i've said in wilmington priory and i'll try and describe some of it wilmington priory uh, was what was known in the middle ages as an alien priory that is to say it wasn't a sort of standalone benedictine priory in its own right but it was the sort of england office if you like of uh, a bigger priory in normandy now as all of you i'm sure being diligent historians will know we don't have no priories or abbeys or monasteries in england today Thank you very much for that, Henry VIII. Um, however, th- those that survive, at least in part, such as Wilmington Priory, are pretty cool places. Um, and today, Wilmington Priory is managed by the Landmark Trust. Uh, if you don't know the Landmark Trust, big up the Landmark Trust, check them out. Uh, they manage a portfolio of astonishing properties um, in the UK, which you can stay in you can like hire them for a weekend or a week and they're all amazing buildings forget airbnb get on the landmark trust because they're all incredible historic buildings um that are not only as wilmington priory is lovely uh interesting historical places but also welcoming family properties um where you can enjoy a good time so uh, i'm a big fan of the landmark trust um because this elides two of my great interests, one of which is old stuff, and the other of which is comfortable stuff, nice stuff, fancy stuff. So, if you're after a uh, a break, you could even come here and stay at Wilmington Priory, and you're in the UK. Uh, check out the Landmark Trust. Just Google the Landmark Trust and get after their um, after their business. So let me t- let me tell you a little bit more about Wilmington Priory. Um, I'm am uh, still in the garden. I'm the wind is probably blowing slightly across the microphone of uh, my high tech recording kit, i.e. my iPhone. But um, I'm sure you can put up with that. I'm walking round the outside of the building, some of which is Georgian, but some of which remains from the Priory. So I'm walking now. Uh, towards a the 13th century i hope i'm gonna get this right or i'm gonna have egg on my face the 13th century hall the remains of which uh, still stand it's it's a ruin it's open to the skies but there's this in- incredible if you go online and google it or I'll, I'll try and post a photo of this podcast 
the incredible sort of front end of what was once the Priory with still some later added glass in the windows and the lintels above the windows and some inserted brick arches in the lower windows uh, which are open. I mean, it's, it's an amazing edifice. Um, I, it's, it's, I, wow, words have actually failed me. Um, it's, it's not the sort of gothic... Uh, jagged gothic ruined teeth of say fountains or revo abbey or any of these gigantic abbeys in yorkshire but it has this incredible charm to it all the same um i'm walking around the inside inside now and there are these little tiny uh, doorways that open into the remaining stone and brickwork um i can imagine if i had my kids here they'd be running in and out of that playing hide and seek um the stone that i'm looking at is green with the ageing of lichen and moss. Um, and then as you move, I've, I've, I'm sort of what would have been inside the hall now, as you move through it, the building changes in age. And you walk around the back, and I'm in the gardens again. And now, as I've come to sort of the back of the house, I can see a, the 14th century addition to the priory, which... Uh, again, the, the wall's still standing, the roof is long gone, but was added as sort of plush apartments. Now, this wasn't... I've already made the comparison to larger monasteries in England, like Revo or like Fountains. Uh, this wasn't like those in where there would have been a community at one stage of hundreds of monks um, and their servants. This would have been a place probably that only a few people lived prior, and maybe some of his servants maybe one or two other uh, other monks, but not very many people. So it, it has the cosy quality of a very fancy Sussex home. Um, and anyway, in this 14th century edition, what's super cool is it's got an undercroft at the bottom. Now, it looks kind of like a dungeon, but really it's the sort of... I'm going to go down the steps. They've got slippy brick steps. Um, it's... Wow, my breath is really steaming as I come down. Uh, and I haven't even been drinking today. Um, it's the... Can you hear that echo? So this is the, the basement. This, I guess, would have been where you stored, you know, wine, supplies, anything that needed to be kept chilled. It's dark, it's underground. It has these amazing uh, sort of vaulted stoneworks which uh, carry above them the weight of the now ruined building and in the corner there's a pile of broken stone which obviously over the years has weathered and fallen um but is incredibly evocative of the glory of the medieval building that once was okay so that's your i'm coming back out of the vault now because it's a bit dingy down there uh that's that's your lightning tour of wilmington priory where i've been all day today um i'm gonna go back into the gardens now and take some of the questions that you guys posted they won't be to do with Wilmington Priory but that's okay let's answer them anyway because they're so, they were really good again as always here's one from Amanda Kemp Amanda Kemp says medieval tournaments I mean Amanda Kemp is straight in there with the question and by the way all of these questions were posted uh, not this week but last week on the Wednesday shout out for questions um, if you're a subscriber to history etc you'll get the Wednesday shout-out for questions. If you're not a subscriber, you won't. But you could subscribe and then you'll get it. And then you'll be able to ask questions which I can try and answer either in the form of posts on 
the Substack, they get emailed out to you, or things like this, uh, the podcast. Anyway, Amanda Kemp, who is a subscriber, says, Medieval tournaments. I know the earlier ones sound pretty intense. Any cool stories or histories around tournaments? I'm definitely not going anywhere near those without some painkillers. That's a reference to my hard and fast rule about historical time travel. Um, well, Amanda Kemp, medieval tournaments, you tend, people tend to think when they think of tournaments of 14th, 15th, definitely, 16th, definitely century tournaments. That's the sort of tournaments that you see in films like that one with Heath Ledger, the name of which has now completely vanished from my mind. A Knight's Tale, there you go, it came back. Um, which is to say they uh, take place in quite enclosed spaces, they have sort of audiences sitting in what approximate to modern football stadiums, and there's some sort of jousting in the lists in which there is a, you know, there are rules. And that's all well and good. Those existed. Uh, if anyone went to the Hampton Court Palace show about the Field of Cloth of Gold, which, in which there was tournamenting of sorts, they would have seen the jousting cards, the incredibly uh, well-kept jousting cards, keeping the score uh, of what had happened in the jousts there. Uh, we know, of course, the famous story of Henry VIII in 1536, bad year, pretty much all round, actually, um, particularly for Anne Boleyn. Uh, Henry was badly injured, jousting in a tournament. Uh, if you wheel back into the 15th century, there are stories about Edward IV entertaining people at great tournaments in London. These are all the, quote-unquote, a knight's tale-style tournaments. Um, I suppose, even if you were to think of the uh, recent Ridley Scott film, The Last Duel, that's still what I would call a a Knight's Tale-style tournament. But if we wheel back a little bit further into the sort of, what can we call it, the formative age of knightly uh, chivalry and combat, tournaments were a mad different thing. These weren't pitch up, buy your ticket, come and watch, uh, you know, like going to Wimbledon for the day or, you know, the US Open or whatever and watch a few matches rough as they may be they were organized a tournament in the let's say the 12th century and i picked the 12th century for for a reason which will become obvious in a minute a tournament was much more like a sort of hum gigantic not a polo match but a cross between polo and rugby and UFC and Formula One motor racing Uh, and I say Formula One motor racing mainly because uh, there were teams involved and vast sums of money like it it wasn't a uh, a poor man's game tournamenting now what would happen at a tournament well the call would go out hey there's tournament happening I don't know let's say in Wilmington. Well, it wouldn't happen here in Wilmington, but we'll just say, for the sake of uh, of argument. And the talk, you know, the call would go out maybe weeks, maybe months in advance, and all the knights, the young guys who thought they were hard, basically, would, in their teams, make their way to the appointed place at the appointed time. And the tournament field, such as it was, might range over 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 miles it was, I suppose, maybe a bit like uh, 
like fox hunting or whatever today. You know, you're going over a large space of countryside and battering at each other, really. It's, it's, it's mock combat. It's the melee. So knights would be kitted up as if they were going to battle. In a sense, it was training for battle. You'd have all your weapons. It was, it was sort of the done thing to fight with um, dulled blades rather than the real thing. Although sometimes uh, blades got switched. And the aim of the game, I suppose, maybe here's another analogy, maybe it's a bit like paintball, was to capture... Uh, tag, if you like, other knights, but that would require fighting. So you you're fighting on horseback and or on foot if you are unhorsed, and your aim is to uh, you know get other knights to submit to be captured by you. In which case, they are your prisoner and they have to ransom themselves. And typically, the way that they would ransom themselves is by giving you their horses and their stuff. Now, a knight was defined defined by his horsemanship and his possession of horses and stuff and so to lose these was was a big deal you know you had to have deep pockets if you're going to go tournamenting um but by the same token (coughs) excuse me by the same token you could also win mightily at tournaments and so it was a very good way for particularly uh, younger sons of knights of of noble men, noble families. It was a good way to make your fortune and make your way in the world. And the best example, here's a name we've mentioned already in previous episodes of the First Draft podcast. The best example of somebody making their way through the tournament scene is, of course, our friend William Marshall. Now, William Marshall starts out his career as the younger son of uh, a sort of middling knightly nobleman, and is sent off as a young man to train with a member of the extended family as a knight and proves to be very good at it and ends up working his way around the tournament circuit of England, well, quite often tournaments abandoned England, but certainly of France in the 12th century. He gets involved in the tournament scene with Henry the Young King, eldest son of Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine, um, very keen tournamenter, and uh, through Marshall's prowess on the tournament field, he works his way up in the world, becomes rich. It's not an easy, as we know, if you go and and read, you could read Tom Asbridge's recent fine, relatively recent fine biography of William Marshall, or you could uh, go and read the original biography of William Marshall, the history of William Marshall in the Anglo-Norman Text Society's translation, um fantastic tens of thousands of lines of uh of old french verse but in in available now in translation you can read his account of the ups and downs of his tournament career losing everything becoming a prisoner gaining it back all of this helped make marshall's name helped make marshall friends it also trained him for the reality of combat into which he was thrust uh, in, in, later in his life in service of Henry the Young King, in service of Eleanor of Aquitaine, in service of the older Henry. Um, the, the dividing line between 12th and 13th century tournamenting and, the, and real battle was very, very thin and porous, which is why quite often rulers uh, and popes would ban tournaments. But the bans, again, to return to the analogy of fox hunting, the bans were never um, totally enforceable. Um, and often we see tournaments, another good example of tournaments is, is 
between the third and fourth crusades you know the fourth crusade is cooked up at a tournament and the third crusade and under the kings richard the lionheart and uh philip augustus um had not succeeded in its aim of liberating jerusalem a group of non-royal but relatively uh, well-to-do nobles got together in france and decided they would go they wanted to go and and go one step further and take jerusalem back and that was actually the genesis of the fourth crusade and um, so tournamenting wasn't just a sort of idle pastime it could have a lot of political functions as well anyway that i hope starts to answer your question if you want to find out more um I, you know i've mentioned the stuff about william marshall already in my book powers and thrones i do a bit about tournamenting in the chapter on knights uh, in my book Crusaders, I do a bit about the tournament, uh, I think at every where the Fourth Crusade was cooked up. So um, go do that, and then if you want to follow the end notes, that'll take you to some further reading on it. Um, Mark Akers asked a good question. Which Cromwell did the most damage to our heritage of historical buildings and art? Thomas Cromwell, that being Henry VIII's uh, chief minister until his downfall and execution in 1540, or Oliver Cromwell, that being um, the protector of England after the execution of Charles I? Well, I think that's an amazing question. And it's, it's really hard, isn't it? Because Thomas Cromwell, um, in a sense... Thomas Cromwell is, is the, the first architect of, or the, or the most important architect of the dissolution of the monasteries. Um, James Clark's recent book on on the dissolution i think it's just called the dissolution of the monasteries and published by yale i think uh, reviewed it last year it's an absolutely superb book uh, which really delves into thomas cromwell's role in overseeing the dissolution um I th- this asks a big historical question can we imagine the dissolution of the monasteries being part of the english reformation without cromwell yes i think we probably can um would it have been done with such enormous efficiency without Cromwell? Maybe not. Crom- Thomas Cromwell, whatever you think of him, was an extraordinarily capable lawyer and bureaucrat whose who's great value to Henry was his ability to push through difficult policy. Uh, he'd have made mincemeat of Brexit. You know, it would have been... He, he, was, he was absolutely superb in that kind of role. And so, in a sense, Cromwell's... You know, that... that if we consider the first phase of the dissolution of the monasteries and the ripping up of the fabric of certainly the ecclesiastical uh, institutions in England that would have survived from the Middle Ages, well, yeah, Cromwell, that Cromwell bears a huge amount of blame. But Oliver Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell. (sighs) By the time we get to Oliver Cromwell, you know, uh, give or take a century after Thomas, I think the culture of vandalism as godly purpose you know a a western european version of iconoclasm uh, i think has has taken such deep root um that somebody like cromwell you know a, a, a blunt force object um Put it into practice knowing that the consequences were philistinic, if that makes sense. That's quite a complicated sentence, I realise. I feel like Thomas Cromwell um, didn't necessarily set out to smash up 
the fabric of hundreds of years of history. They were just sort of rolling with the chaos of the early Reformation. But I feel like Oliver Cromwell, there's, there's a greater degree of deliberate vandalism, of deliberate uh, erasure of history. And so I'm, I'm kind of... I'm, I am torn. I don't, I don't know that I have a, a, a certain answer to the question, but I'm leaning, I think, towards Oliver on the basis of intention... Hmm. Chris Ball 4 asks a good question. Medieval pain. Experiences, expectations, treatments. Basically, were they tougher than us? Great question. I've mentioned before, and people have referenced this in, in the questions. Um, thank you, subscribers, for asking those questions. Um, people have mentioned before, uh, or have asked me, where would I go in history if I could time travel? And I, I always say, I'm not going before painkillers, because eh, I'm a weakling. Um... And a lot of people have referenced... That's now become a known thing. People keep asking me, where would you time travel if I give you all the painkillers that you can take in the time machine? Um, <laughs> I'm still not... I'm, uh, I'm still too wary. But Chris Ball, that is a good question. The history of pain uh, is, for me, a, a super fascinating area. And I think you're, the key word in your question, Chris, is expectation. I think that that, that is what I, I'm driving at whenever I talk about um, the revolution that is the, the easy availability of painkillers from the early 20th century, like the 1910s, 1920s onwards. Our expectation, although it may not always be met, is that if there's a pain, it can be treated. And that, let's say, medical procedures um, can be undertaken with anaesthetic. And although, you know, there is all medical, significant medical procedures bear some risk of some sort, um, the risk oughtn't to be uh, agonising pain at the point of the delivery of the operation, right? I think that if you look, let's take it to fundamentals. What is the, you know, pre-20th century um, foundational Western myth uh, about suffering, it is the story of Adam and Eve. What is uh, what are Adam and Eve's punishments from God for their transgression in the Garden of Eden? Well, Adam is to to toil all his days. I can't quote from the uh, the King James Bible off the top of my head, but it's work. It's backbreaking, agonising, painful work. Pain, pain. I sound like it's to go back to episode one, the beginning of Reservoir Dogs. Um, pain uh, is, from work is Adam's punishment for the original sin what is eve's punishment pain the pain of bearing children and i think that tells us you know i'm assuming not many if any of you listening are uh are biblical literalists i certainly myself am not however i do think that there is enormous beauty and truth in the stories of uh, the old testament and the story of Adam and Eve, for putting aside everything else that it tells us, tells us something about the expectation of life. What is your essential expectation of the negative side of life before the 20th century in the Christian era? It is, there will be pain. And you will either suffer for your work or you will suffer, if you're a woman, from bearing children. Agony is going to be part of your everyday existence. Now... Once you, if, if that expectation is inculcated not only from your observation 
of or is ingrained in your mind not only from your observation of life but from your absorption of uh, of uh, christian stories does that per se make you tougher i don't know i mean it depends what we mean by tougher what a historian's answer um but once the expectation is there uh, maybe the reality of pain is less shocking and unacceptable psychologically than it is to us today you know you, we hear from time to time today people who say that pain is uh, essentially a um an imaginary construct and that pain can be controlled um through uh, mental processes be those sort of yogic breathing i certainly if i go get tattooed um practice a sort of deep i do a bit of yoga so i, I practice that sort of deep breath and i find that happens with pain management um there are there are non-medical techniques for dealing with pain um, if we are expecting it. You know, when you get tattooed, you have to expect that there's going to be pain. So you set your uh, benchmark accordingly and you deal with the pain accordingly. Does that make you a tougher person or is it just part of the psychological experience of pain? Um, and how do we, uh, can we map that onto history and say that if you are pre-20th century and, and you know that pain is going to be part of your life if you get injured if you get ill if you bear children if you work do you just sort of deal with it because there's no other option um i think yes but does that make them tougher no they're just different people and the great lesson i think of history when we what is history it's it's looking at studying people in different times and not only their similarities to us which is a very popular part of teaching history but also their differences there are enormous differences in the way that they lived in the way that they saw the world so that's a fantastic question um and thank you very much for asking it now we're almost at half an hour uh, as usual i've just blathered on and answered at great length um questions i thought i would rattle through but i hope you're enjoying listening i'm going to answer one more question uh, and that this week um, it's from Jennifer Tidwell who says what was your gateway drug into history and I hope that this that a couple of other people I think Neil Jones and others uh, have um, have asked similar questions which is about how did I get into uh, history and I'm going to I'm going to have to tell you that it's pretty random I mean I got into history because I had a great teacher at school, Robin Green, taught me, went from the age of about 15 to 17, 18, inspirational teacher, I applied to do history at university, read history at Cambridge, had a bunch more inspirational teachers, Helen Castor was one, David Starkey was another. Um, and, you know, and, and I took it from there. This phrase gateway drug to history is one I use a lot when I'm talking about historical fiction because I think that's how, that's how people often first start becoming interested in history through, through historical fiction or, or drama on TV. That really wasn't the case for me. The, case, the, the, the inspiration for me was simply um, the influence of a great teacher. And it could well have been, I suppose, that I'd had a... You know, I had good English teachers at school, but I had you know one that I, I connected with as much as I did with Robin Green. Maybe I'd be studying Shakespeare now, or Joyce, or you know whatever, whatever. 
But it happened to be history. And I think that what was at the essence of my history teacher's teaching was the ability, his ability, to tell stories um, and to create empathy in his storytelling, to bring characters from these long-ago ages to life and help us, or help me certainly as a, as a teenager, reach into that world and experience the things I've been talking about today, experience the... Um, the the ring of familiarity when reading about people from the past and also the thrill of strangeness the exoticism of the past and I think that uh, his ability to do that was uh, second to none really or certainly it came at a a time in my life when I was uh, receptive to um, to a great teacher like that so that that's that's the beginning of my story of my journey into history although it gets a lot more random after that i did promise last in last week's episode that um i was going to answer a question about producers and i still i've gone back through and i can't find who asked the question what does a tv producer do um oh no it was valerie It was Valerie, who's asked questions before. Sorry, Valerie. You've mentioned before, said Valerie, that you produce a TV programme. Brackets, can't remember which one. Well, I was the executive producer, one of the executive producers of Anne Boleyn, which is a drama last year. What does a producer actually do? (laughs) And the short answer is a vast number of different things. Some producers um, are responsible for financing things. Some producers are responsible for the creative... Uh, you know, creating idea, you know, concepts and ideas. Some producers, you know, you'd have something like a line producer who'd be very involved in the logistics of setting up a, a, a filming day. And you'd have, so, you know, the title executive producer, which I've mentioned just now, which gets bandied about a lot. That can be anything from a famous actor who just wants a cut of the, or expects, or is given a cut of the profits of um, an enterprise, be it a film or a television program and so gets the title executive producer it can be someone extremely hands-on who's over everything from script to casting to um you know being on set for every day of filming or it can be somebody who's at a network uh, or, or a studio who's overseeing things from afar and making sure that the the production fits in with the broader strategy and the slate that that that, that studio or that network has producers are people who do stuff behind the scenes fundamentally and what that is uh well it can be almost anything um the only thing that they are seldom doing is directing that's standing there and saying let's shoot this let's shoot that let's shoot this let's shoot that holding any pieces of kit uh or being in front of camera although sometimes um as i've suggested you know an actor or or quote-unquote talent will be a producer but, well, is that an open-ended question? Yeah, uh, open-ended answer to a good question? Yes, because it is a good question. Um, and we could probably do an entire podcast series about what does a producer do? But I think you'd all stop listening to that pretty quickly. Okay, um, thank you very much for listening to this episode of First Draft. Uh, thank you, a million thank yous, a million and one thank yous to all the fantastic subscribers to history etc thank you thank you thank you thank you i'm not going to say it a million one times but i would if we had if we had the the time 
Um, please keep submitting your questions. I absolutely love it. It, it drives the content of the podcast. It drives the content of uh, the Substack newsletter. That's deliberate. I want this to satisfy, to meet your demands and expectations. Um, I want you to enjoy reading and listening and, uh, and feeling like you're part of this is something we're doing together. Uh, so please continue to enjoy it. Continue to let me know what you think. Um, I will see you next week when I, I don't think I'll be anywhere as, as magical as Wilmington Priory. Again, if you want to check out Wilmington Priory, hit up the Landmark Trust. All you've got to do is Google them. You'll find their website. You'll find loads more information about Wilmington Priory online. Why not book it? Bring your kids here. Have a great time. Go up, check out that long man of Wilmington. Um, and tell me what you think. All right. Lots of love you. I will uh, see you on the other side. Bye for now.